Hey there, welcome to The Good Complex. We are so glad that you have joined us. We are right in the middle of an amazing series on lessons from the pandemic. And if you are joining us for the first time, you'll learn that here on The Good Complex, we like to have conversations about what's going on in our world and our culture and get very diverse perspectives and, and hear from experts about what they have to say about what's going on in our world. And this series in particular has been incredible because I think everyone's life just sort of blew up during the pandemic. And we've been learning a lot about ourselves and the world in ways that we didn't ever expect to. Oh yeah. <laughs> so it feels like the pandemic affected everybody in very unexpected ways mm -hmm. and not just kind of at an individual level, but institutions and culture wide and, and those types of things. And so We've had some great conversations with cultural experts of, of different types and mental health. And, but then also, you know, both Jeff and I are pastors and the church had some interesting responses in the Christian community, like the, that whole season during the pandemic. And so we thought it'd be good to talk, kind of talk to an expert. And so you may have not uh, have heard of the, the guest that we're gonna be talking to uh, today, but within our world, within Jeff's world and my world, he's kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, why don't you introduce our guest? Yeah, so Dr. Bach is pretty well-rounded. He's, he's a, a professor uh, of, at, a, at a graduate institution at a seminary. Um, he's a New Testament scholar that is extremely well-respected um, throughout, you know, whether you're liberal in theology or conservative, it doesn't matter. He's mm -hmm. He's in his guy. field, he's he's uh, respected by everybody. He also is a social commentator, so he's he puts a lot of effort in work. He works for an organization that uh, that that helps uh, Christians engage culture and think mm -hmm. more deeply in, in about culture in a way that's healthier. So, so he's great to talk to from uh, from this perspective. And it is, I'll kind of warn you, it is. Uh, you mentioned you know you may have been interested to see how the church responded in some weird ways. This is kind of a Christian insider conversation. So if you're not a Christian, it'll be an opportunity to say, man, what's the deal with those people? <laughs> what are they doing? Like, you know, they're, right. you know, because I'm not sure, I'm not sure as Christians, we did so great through the pandemic season. And we'll talk about that. There's some things we could have, we need to learn from that we could have mm -hmm. done better. Yeah. And, and some of you who are not Christian, you're like, yeah, you think, you know, yeah. I, I, it's, it's obvious from the outside looking in. But from the inside, and so I think you'll be fascinated if you're from the outside looking in, but from the inside, I think it's really important to be a little bit introspective and say, yeah, what is going on? And Because it did uh, reveal some stuff it did. within us, yeah. And we need to do better. And mm -hmm. and so how, how can we how can we do that? And because it, today we're not, you know, when we're talking about lessons from the pandemic, you might just think of the disease itself and how you respond, how we responded. Yeah. But this is a broader conversation because the way I think of it is during that pandemic time period, there were at least, you know, three storms that mm -hmm. gathered together to form a perfect storm. And one of those was the pandemic itself and mm -hmm. how Christians responded to that. Um, the other were uh, the racial tensions that were already there, but bubbled For up sure. in a massive yeah. way mm -hmm. uh, in the wake of George Floyd, Amart mm -hmm. Arbery and Breonna Taylor, so on yeah. in that time period. And how Christians responded, mm -hmm. and as well, and then, um, and then just political unrest. Yeah, the, the third, political yes, season. Yeah, yeah, the political season, and 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 we're going to be going through that again. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> in the right. next couple of years yeah, coming up. So it's, years. it's great to so hear to this better. conversation. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. it gives us some insight on and how we can respond those, better next and time. Any of those storms would be difficult in and of themselves. To yeah. have them all happen at the same time, to have the political unrest and the racial and like all of that kind of stuff during a pandemic, it was a lot. 
So I think you're, it's going to be an incredible conversation, mm-hmm. and I think we're all going to get a whole lot out of. So, so let's dive yeah. into Dr. Daryl Bach and, and a really important conversation. Thank you so much for agreeing to, for, to, to be part of this crazy thing. Well, I'm glad to be with you, Jeff. We joke here at the center that this culture is the gift that just keeps giving. So uh, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's know, true. Lots of well, challenges. Well, I, ne- I never run out of things to talk about when you're talking about <laughs> cultural engagement. Well, Daryl, one of the things I appreciate about you uh, is that you have a really, impes- really impressive uh, reputation and you've written 40 books and, you know, you're probably the leading person on Luke Acts and the New Testament. You have these impressive degrees and all of this stuff. But I, I've never related to you in a way that you just seem like a, a guy who wants to be helpful whenever I relate to you. And I, I yeah. really appreciate that. So thanks well, for thanks. being, you know, who you are. Um, so there's a lot to talk about um, while I have you because I'm excited about having you. And it's going to be a really great conversation today. So the way I think about it with the pandemic is it was, it was kind of a perfect storm of kind of three different storms that came together to form one big one, you know, like that movie. And uh, one of those was the pandemic itself and how we as a culture, and certainly those of us as Christians and churches, how we uh, dealt with the pandemic with masks and shutdowns and, you know, what do we do there? Um, And with lots of opinions and lots of controversy in that. And then another part of that, another storm coming into that, the racial tensions that were underneath certainly, but then like a volcano erupted in the wake of George Floyd and then uh, Ahmaud Arbery and, you know, so on. So, um, and then how Christians, how the church uh, responded to that. Um, and and then the other, um, we're going to have to edit this out because what was, what was the third one? Um, <laughs> pandemic. Uh, Gosh, I mean, I've, I've said this so many times. I just said it. Hold on. You come in. Oh, political politics. tension. Sorry, politics. Okay. And sorry to give you an editing job. And then the the third storm is was a political craziness of a deeply divided political season uh, and presidential election and as culture and Christians and a polarized world and all of that. So all those three came coming together. Um, let's just try to knock some of these out real quick. I'd love to get your perspective from both a cultural perspective and and even throw in some New Testament perspective that could help be a guide of and how can we have done better and what can we learn going forward. Um, so maybe let's start with the pandemic itself in terms of how Christians sort of made decisions about how we approach that in culture. Um, I, I mean, I, maybe even learning from 2000 years ago, those early Christians, but, but what would you say um, from both a New Testament perspective, a church history perspective, just your own observations, how would you kind of grade the way we as Christians went through the pandemic itself in terms oh, man, of responding I hate grading. to that crisis? I hate giving a number well, no. on a paper, but, uh, <laughs> but, but you've um, done it to me before. I've got, I've, I've, I've been doing it for 40 years, I mean, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but when I sit down to do it, I go, oh my goodness. So, um, so let, let, let's start with the pandemic. The pandemic, I think was a test about where people's attention was in terms of 
how to deal with what was going on around them. It, it was a challenging time because everybody was put at risk. And so the question is, when you're at risk, how are you going to respond? Are you going to respond in a way that is self-protective and self-focused? Or are you going to respond in a way that's trying to be aware of what's going on around you and how you're impacting, how what you do impacts someone else? And the, the Christian value here, I think, is that we're supposed to think of others as more important than ourselves. The arrow, I, t- I tell people that when you get saved, the arrow's been pointing at you all your life and you're your self-focus and your attentions on yourself and what you do and the decisions you make. And then the gospel comes, it impacts you. The spirit comes into your life. You're told to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. And that arrow gets pushed from being pointed to you to being pointed out and uh, in an outward direction. And, and you become sensitive and concerned about, about the way uh, you impact others by what you do. And you do that both by what you believe and then how you respond to it. So the, the tricky part of the pandemic was that it, 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 science was trying to figure it out for the first thing. One, we didn't have vaccines for a while, so it was really, really dangerous. Um, and we were trying to figure out how to protect ourselves from this virus, which we were passing around to one another like ha- shaking hands. And uh, that, you know, that was a challenge. Um, I learned to wash my hands six times, seven times more than I ever had before in my life during the pandemic. I think it's still with me. I think I still do it. So, um, so that's, that's an example of what we're talking about. And so many Christians got focused on whether the government was overprotecting us or uh, whether the government was preventing us from meeting together as Christians. Um, that some of that was self-focused in terms of my own freedoms. Um, other people were concerned with how does the fact that I might might be carrying a virus but don't know it impact someone else who may be carrying a virus and doesn't know it. And so they were concerned about being masked up, keeping distance, et cetera, and trying to respond. You know, and then, of course, when we got the vaccines, then everything changed. Uh, it, it didn't. It didn't. Some people are saying, well, I don't want to be mandated to get a vaccine, et cetera. I want to. Irony is, I want to do with my own body what I want to do with my own body, and uh, uh, and then on the other hand, uh, there were other people who said, "No, my responsibility is to be, is to care for people, and if I care for people, then I'm going to one take care of myself with a vaccine, and two uh, lower the risk of my doing something harmful to someone else." So um, that was the vaccine. If you look at church history, because that was the second part of your question, you look at church history. The church had a pretty has had a pretty good record in the midst of pandemics and that kind of thing of going in and being of help, of serving. That was the bottom line. You can look at pandemics that took place in Egypt in the second century. You can look at the Black Death, um, which was much, much later. Um, the reputation of Christians is they put themselves at risk for their neighbor and uh, and and tried to care for them. Um, because in the background is the idea, I think, that God has my back as a believer, um, that I'm my position is secure, my long-term spiritual well-being is secure, whether I'm in this life or not. And so they were willing to take the risk and did. So that's yeah. the... 
that's a short answer on the pandemic. Obviously, yeah, yeah. it generated a no lack of debate, including exciting church meetings where church leaders were trying to decide. All right. Yeah. What do we tell people? Where do we have them sit? How far away do we keep them from one another? Should we be meeting at all, et cetera? I've been in those meetings. Uh, that was yeah, no you fun. got you know, I went to seminary. You were one of my professors. You guys never talked about that when I was. No, no, no. I, 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 I never had a class <laughs> on pandemicology. OK, yes. So, um, yeah, so it's tricky, but it does seem like in the in the in the early centuries of the church, one of the reasons Christianity became so accepted and people more open to it was how Christians responded in those times. It seems like it feels like kind of the opposite that happened in our case, at yeah, least by I, reputation. I, I think that's fair. I think there, you know, when I look at the early, I often tell people we need to go back to the future and thinking about our cultural engagement. What I mean by that is the early church had no social power, no political power, no cultural power. All they had was spiritual power. And they applied that spiritual power selflessly. They were yeah. following the example of Christ. And they got people's attention in two ways, by how they faced persecution and by how they served, regardless. And so, um, uh, you know, they picked up the baby that was left on the doorstep that was left to die. They would pick up and take care of the um, the way in which they suffered unjustly, even got notes from, you know, church historians like like uh, Tacitus or Suetonius who would complain about the way in which uh, Christians were unjustly treated, even though they believed the religion was a superstition. Yeah. And uh, uh, and that got their attention. It, something something's going on here. I, I tell people that when you listen to the testimony of someone who did not grow up in the church, okay, so they weren't raised yeah. by mom and dad to be a Christian, if I can say it that way. Um, inevitably, somewhere in that testimony is I met this person, they lived differently. I became curious. I started to ask them questions. And I say, there's a lesson in that that the way in which people get drawn to the gospel is by the way we interact with people relationally and care for them and show our care for them. And that's what this reflected. The, these historical approaches to pandemic showed the church cared. So I want to move on to the next storm. But before I do, uh, you know, it felt like for a lot of people, personal freedom was being elevated as a big value for we've got to protect our freedom. Nobody can tell us what to do. We're getting right. And I remember doing a, a sermon. And so I, I hope you'll tell me I'm OK on this on kind of the stewardship of freedom. Right. And, and freedom is a good thing to have. But it's a stewardship that we, we you actually that freedom in the New Testament is always to give up for the sake of others. It's I give up my liberty. I give up my freedom out of love to to prefer the other. It's not to, you know, be uh, focus on me. Yeah, yeah. right. And so, but it seemed like this value of freedom was being like you really had to fight for this. You know, we got to stand for truth. We got to stand for freedom. When, yeah, you know, freedom is important, but it's all, but it's not a value. It's not a biblical value, except as a way to give it up for the sake of others. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I also think that we have to think about what it means to be a, a citizen who loves their neighbor, okay, which is another, there's just a minor command yeah. about about the great commandment. That's know? right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's called great because yeah. it's yeah. kind of at the top. I mean, Jesus said, if you do this, you're fulfilling the law. So that's kind of 
you know, I, I do yeah. that. You know, on the back, you get a little Pretty recommendation big. about a book. That's Jesus' yeah. recommendation for the great <laughs> And so, yeah. so you're yeah. you're making this point, and and the and you're trying to love your neighbor well. So how do I care for them? That kind of thing. And I really think the church, because it has developed a persecution complex, when you when you feel you are a victim and you are wounded, you become self-protective. And that's what I think has happened. And and in that process, you tend to think about the injustices that are coming at you. But of course, how did Jesus handle his injustice? He continued to love even the people who are committing injustice against him. In fact, he even prayed for the people while he was on the cross that had crucified him, which, I mean, just think about that. Stephen did the same. So, um, so there's a way of thinking about how we engage with people, even, even when we may be the victim uh, that tries to not respond out of our woundedness, okay, but out of the security that we have because we know God has our back and God has us in his hands. And that should all free us up. We're talking about freedom. That should free us up to freely love others. And that's really what the calling is to do, is to freely love others. So let's move to the next storm, uh, the, the racial tensions that, that bubbled up, right, which is another uh, challenge and opportunity for everybody in culture to say, hey, this, we've got to deal with this. It's, this is, you know, we can't just act like it's not here. It's here. And it's an opportunity. At least it can be seen that way to you know, to kind of push the ball forward in our culture. Um, let's talk a little bit about that from a Christian response, um, because it, it it feels like we have mixed results there, right? As some Christians responded in certain ways, others tended to deny there's a problem or anything like that. So from a kind of just from a New Testament perspective, talk about, and, and from your perspective in general, talk about that storm and what can we learn from how how we could have, or maybe did respond, or what should a response look like? So let me do this one, past, present, and future, and I'm gonna to go to Old Testament and then come to the new. Um, there are a series of pasts in the Old Testament, uh, whether you think about Micah 6, Amos 5, um, Isaiah 58. Uh, these are texts that all talk about the way God views justice. The passage I like to zero in on is Micah 6, one to eight. Now, most people will have heard a sermon on Micah 6, 8, but they will not have played with the context that leads to that verse. That passage is an indictment against Israel for not living justly with people. Um, and God, you know, one of the advantages of being God is you can be both judge and prosecutor, and you can be right in both slots. And so, so God's doing double duty here. He is exercising his judgment on the one hand, but he's also pressing the indictment against the nation. And when he does so, he says, what have I done to cause you to be so unfaithful in this way? Yeah. And, uh, and the response from Israel is, well, what should we do? Should we bring, you know, oodles and oodles of, of grain and offer a sacrifice? Should we even consider doing something that would be inconceivable in Israel? which is to offer their firstborn to God, a child sacrifice. Yeah. What sacrifice can I give that is an example of my worship and commitment to you 
that would rectify the gap that I have created by not doing what you've asked me to do and how I'm relating to other people. And then you get Micah 6.8, which is the exhortation, you know, to uh, love justice, to walk humbly with your God. You know, it's a very well-known passage. And, and here's the boil down the way I say it. What God is saying is, I don't need your mega worship. I don't need your worship in spades or on steroids. Okay. What I need is the way I've called you to relate to people. So my shortened version of that is if we do not care about justice, God doesn't care about our worship. Now think about that for a second. Okay. We spend a lot of time thinking about how we worship God. It goes into every service that we have on a weekend. Uh, and we think about how can we honor God? How can we lift him up? And that's what worship is. You're exalting the name of the Lord. You're lifting his name up. God says the way you lift my name up is by how you live. Okay. That's more important. And you need to care about justice. And all these passages that I've just named are highlighting justice as something that God cares about his coming from his people. So that's the first text. Second text is in Ephesians. And I love this one. Because we've created in our minds a divide between the gospel and the way we engage people. One we call, one I call the gospel gospel. The other I call, and people call the social gospel. Okay, the gospel gospel is okay. You need Jesus to save you. You need to be uh, delivered from your sins. Christ died for you on the cross. You know, all the standard things that we do when we do evangelism. And social gospel is bad news. Okay. It comes from uh, liberalism. It has nothing to do with the real message of the Bible. And we've divided something that used to be together. Uh, When, if you want to know how together it was, I mean, we had things like state churches. Okay. Whatever you think of the state church, the fact that you had a state church said that people were thinking their Christianity relates to the way they live from day to day in all spheres of life. Or the abolition movement. The abolition movement, which predates the fundamentalist modernist controversy, you know, was seen as is all motivated and created by Christians who were saying we need to be careful about how we treat people. So I go to Ephesians 2. Actually, I start in Ephesians 1. There's a little prayer that says, I want you to, to know Christ better by understanding the wealth that you have, the hope that you possess, and the power that you have access to that raised Christ from the dead. That's the prayer at the end of 1. We get a chapter break. So people go, oh. End of story. Um, uh, You, Jeff, you go, oh, that's last week. Next week we'll be on Ephesians 2. We'll pick it up there. But actually, Ephesians 2 is the illustration of how that applies to us. So we shouldn't take the chapter right quite so seriously. And the first part of it is, this is how God saves us as a people and as individuals. He takes us when we're dead in our trespasses and sins, have no power. And he gives us new life, which enables us to walk with God. And then you get the Protestant creed, okay? Salvation is by grace, um, through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Everyone goes, man, that's that's the gospel. We're right in the middle of it there. That's everything the gospel is about. And then I say, keep reading. 2.10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what is this salvation for? What is the gospel gospel for? Okay, is to make us into a certain kind of people who live in a certain kind of way that honors God and that God has prepared for us 
to be able to honor him in this way. And then the next question is, and then people go, oh, well, that's the end of that paragraph. That's next week's sermon. No, 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 no. Keep reading. 2, 11 to 22. What's the first good work? The first good work is what God has done in Christ in bringing Jews and Gentiles together into one body. And what, what God has done, he's, he's taken the way we treat people and wedded it to the product of the gospel so that when you ask, what is the gospel for? The gospel is for shalom. The gospel is for peace. It's designed to bring people together, have them work together. And Jews and Gentiles were kind of like oil and water, okay? Gasoline yeah. and fire, all right? They weren't designed the way they treated one another to function together. And here God has called these people who absolutely hated each other. They were at their, their you know, they were at each other's throats and said, I'm going to make you a community that you live together and you share together. And the rest of the New Testament is actually the story of how to make that work because it's not easy. And, yeah, and so my point is that the way we treat people is actually part of the goal of the gospel. And that's treating people, whether I'm in the church now, obviously the blessing happens in the church with what happens through Christ. But the invitation is to join that and to care about it. And that invitation, the Great Commission is not say, go into the church and make better disciples. Great Commission is go into the world and make disciples. Yeah. So for our listeners, a couple of things there. One gospel, good news, it just means good news, but it, we use it to talk about the core of the Christian message. Right. Uh, which is, uh, and then, um, and then when we think of Jew and Gentile, I mean, we really, those are, there's religious connotations, of course, but those are ethnicities. You have the Jews and then all the other Gentiles, all the other ethnicities. So pretty directly connects to the ethnic, you know, when we have, as we exactly have issues right. here, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting in Luke 4, when Jesus preaches his sermon about maybe he's the son of God, me, the spirit is upon me and I've come to um, liberate the captives, etc. He's talking about this spiritual liberation that he brings. The crowd contemplates the possibility that he might be the Christ. But isn't he Joseph's son? They're wrestling with it. But we know this guy. How could this possibly be? But the moment he says, he warns them by saying in the periods of Elijah and Elisha, God didn't do anything except for Gentiles. They go, boom. Okay, they aren't going to contemplate that. They aren't going yeah. there. Okay, so this racial issue has been with us for a long time. Okay, it's not just a modern phenomenon. The group, the names of the groups change, but the conflict yeah. has always been there and we've always wrestled with it. And the gospel is designed when applied to take that hostility, the barrier of hostility that gets removed in Ephesians 2, and turn it into a place of peace, a place of shalom. And the only way you do that is by being sensitive and aware of the people around you. So if that's core to our message and therefore core to our mission and calling, not just, oh, bonus. Hey, if you, if you happen to do that too, that's great. But it's really about John 3, 16. You know, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. You got to believe that, check, and make sure everybody can check that. But no, it's not that. It's, it's bringing, as you said, everything. I won't repeat what you just said. So if that's true, um, how, how could it have been different if we had gone through that season? And, and some did. 
right? There was a mixture, right? But gone through that season with that as a focus, realizing that's, that's actually our issue. That's not something, you know, somebody else to deal with. That's, this is ours to deal with. Because I was reading, uh, you know, these Pew studies that came out not too long ago and uh, of, you know, Gen Z millennials leaving the church and, and evangelicals, white evangelicals were widely known, described to be perpetuators of racial injustice, not challengers of racial injustice. And that went way up, that perception went way up during the pandemic, during those tensions, not the other way around. Um, so what could it have, how could it have been different? Okay, so I've, I've dealt with the past and I've dealt with the present. Let me deal with the future because that's how to answer your question. You go to Revelation 5 and Revelation 7. And you ask, where is God taking the church? Okay, I've already said that salvation is for not just saving us, but actually making us a people who are a place where shalom can happen. Okay, and reconciliation is a very big theme about what's at the core of what our salvation is about. You go to Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, what you see is a church gathered in heaven that's multi-ethnic. Every tribe and every nation is praising who Jesus is. That's where God is taking us. And the church is supposed to be the sneak preview of that. Okay. If the church is supposed to be the sneak preview of where God is taking us, then every tribe and every nation should have access to the opportunities of the gospel. And we should be living in such a way that we're trying to invite and draw people into that. And we try and care for that space in a, in a way that is positively stewarded, if I can say it that way. I think what happened is, there was a time, because of the nature of some of the injustices that you mentioned, the George Floyds and, and that kind of thing, where people went, that's wrong. And there was an initial gut reaction and sympathy. But what happens has happened consistently sociologically when these moments happen is you get that moment of sympathy and then you get the pushback that comes from people because that sympathy has been created. And... And so it's kind of a two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back. And it's where you land after the pushback has come that tells you where you really are. And the thing that's hard for me is I lived through the 60s. I was, I was a teenager in the 60s. I watched the civil rights movement and what it brought and the hope that it brought and the opportunity that it brought to people. And I look at where we are now and I go, I'm not sure we've come very far. We've come far at in some of our laws, but where have we come in our hearts? And that's a whole different story. And the church should be a place that says every person's made in the image of God. Every person deserves respect and honor. No one deserves to be uh, invisible or not cared about, etc. And the pastoral heart that should be a part of every Christian should beat out of concern for the injustices that do exist in our society and we should be honest about it um and then and th and that requires some listening which i also think we lack um just some really good listening where my goal isn't to listen and push back but to actually listen and hear what someone else's very different experience is like and and wrestle with all right if that's really what goes on for so many people who, you know, they, they aren't a criminal, they aren't irresponsible, et cetera. They're actually trying to live their lives pretty fast. They have to work three jobs in order to, in order to pay from week to week, that kind of thing. And they're telling me these things. Then what do I do with that? 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd love to keep talking for multiple episodes about this, but I want to move on to the, to the, the final of the three storms. Um, and that is just the polit- contentious political season that happened during this pandemic time and the, the presidential election and how uh, evangelicals went through that season um, and sort of pinning our, our brand to a candidate or to a, to a party. And I think either way, it doesn't matter which way it goes, but it, you know, we, we know what happened over these last years. So um, talk a little bit about your perspective, just help us out on that of how do we, how, how, how could we do better than what happened uh, in that contentious political season in terms of how evangelicals uh, went through that? I mean, with whether it's cultural wars or Christian nationalism or just whatever. Uh, uh, well, the preacher in me is going to have three points again. You. The preacher in me is going to have three oh, points again. Okay. So first yep, I'm going to yep. tell you um, uh, the different ways, the different reasons why evangelicals responded as they did. The second part is going to be talking about how we need to view the public space. And then the third part is going to be, so what do we do now? So let me let me start with the first. I really think there were three kinds of evangelicals who coalesced around the concerns that people on the outside going, oh, what is going on? How can, he, how can an evangelical have complained so hard 10 years ago about certain things and 10 years later with basically the same kinds of circumstances give someone a pass how does that happen okay and i think you got and i think it's the larger cultural context that is that is at work here and there are three kinds of christians um evangelicals i'll say and evangelicals in some cases may need to be quotes but just hang with me there's the group that longs for a Christian nation, a Christian government, and even a kind of theonomy. They know you can't have it totally, but they want it as Christian as it could possibly be. They're never asking this question. What do I do with a neighbor who's a citizen who's not a Christian and has every right to the same set of rights as a part of my nation that I possess as a person? What do I do with that person? And how, do I, how are they supposed to think about that kind of goal for what it is that the country's supposed to be? So that's one group. Second group is a group that says, I just think Christian values are of help in making society run in a healthy kind of way. Okay. And they're motivated by that. And um, that group tends to be less hard edged, but they're concerned about where our society is. And so they respond out of that. And then the third group is what I say, they're defined by the culture war. They see everything through a pro-God, anti-God lens. They do it with regard to certain issues that they have identified as pro-God, anti-God. They may not be consistent in having all the issues drop into that bucket where it might move back and forth a little bit. And so and, and so the decision for them is also clear. They tend to also be hard-edged, much like the Christian nation group is hard-edged. And sometimes you get a coalition of those two, the group that thinks we ought to be more Christian in our government, we're a Christian nation, and uh, everything's pro-God and anti-God, and I'm going to push back. That's why they like the fighter. They like the fighter who's pushing back on, on, the, on the anti-God side, the way they've identified it, et cetera. 
And it's not to say that that's not there. There are a lot of people in our society who want nothing to do with religion, who think religion is all bad, et cetera. So you've got that. So that's our that's where we are. Okay. And that's why you get the variety. All three of those groups are probably going to move in a in a certain direction, a certain political direction, but they're doing so for different reasons. That's my point. So what do we do with that? Here's the way public space works in my mind. And this is something that I think people don't process well enough, but it's part of what's going on. We live in a fallen world. Fallen world means that things function dysfunctionally. Okay. What you have in most political issues are values, sometimes even biblical values, that because it's dysfunctional, they collide. They're not aligned. They're not, they're not calibrated in a healthy way. And so they collide. Our politics, because it's our politics are largely binary in the ways I've just described, say grab one value and negate or neutralize the other. Okay? That robs us of the, com of the conversation we actually need to have, which is how do I calibrate these two va values in such a way that they're better aligned? Okay? Even though now they're colliding. And we rob ourselves of the conversation that we need to have. We never have the conversations that we need to have. Each side is bringing something to the table that deserves attention. And the question is, how do I deal with that, the, with, with that collision without saying one is red and the other is blue and the two shall never, may the twain never meet. And so um, that's, what I, that's what I think we're dealing with. So where does that leave us? That leaves us with a huge need to do a better job of listening and, and doing some slow thinking where the issue is not which side you're on and how can I simplify this and take away any nuances or calibration. See, calibration's hard. So take away the calibration. No, what we need to do is slow down and ask, what is it that's being said from the other side that I actually ought to be paying attention to? And, in the, and notice I've said from either side, I'm not, I'm not blaming yeah. one side or the other here. There's a dialogue, a genuine, in some cases, hard dialogue that needs to take place. We do a better job of listening. And then we ask ourselves, how do we calibrate this in a better way than what we're doing right now? Because if we just fight, the collision continues and we just battle. Yeah. yeah, I just, that's, that's hard. It seems like that's really hard for Christians to do. Yeah. For some reason, right? Because you want to stand for truth. And if I listen, it means I'm. So here's what's going or, on know, there, Jeff. What's, yeah. what's going yeah. on there, Jeff, is that we have, if we don't think about this well, we actually, how do I want to say, we actually neuter the reason for having the church. Hmm. Okay. The yeah. church is the place where people who think Christianly, live Christianly, uh, want to have Christian community, et cetera, that's where it happens. Okay. Yeah. And that's where it's supposed to happen. Right. In a nation where I've got people of various backgrounds, et cetera, a nation is set up to be pluralistic. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I hate to say that. The world is the world. The world is in the yeah. Bible. The world's in the Bible till the end. Okay. So the world's world. Now I make an effort to try and persuade people in the world that the best way to live is to live Christianly. Mm -hmm. But if I lose in the world, I'm supposed to lose well. Yeah. And that's what we fail to do. Yeah, it seems that Christians should be the best of pluralists, not the worst. Right? The best of pluralists and, yeah. the most, and the most gracious about how they function in the world because the thing that makes Christianity distinctive is that I love my enemy.
Yeah. Yeah. That's what makes us different. Okay. But when we're behaving like the way the world does, I'm not going to love my enemy. Are you kidding? He's my enemy. Okay. I want to yeah. crush him. There's another dimension to this that's spiritual that we don't have time for, but it's pretty important because Ephesians 6 says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. People are not the enemy. Okay. Our, the battle's spiritual. Actually, people are the goal. People outside the church are the goal. They're not the enemy. And and it's spiritual resources that is our best defense, not an ideology. It's when we live out the Christian life the way God has called us to live it out. That's our best testimony. And I'm back to the testimonies I talked about earlier. You listen to people outside the church, how they came to the Lord. Okay, It isn't that I sat down and decided I was going to adopt this ideology. Okay, It was someone loved me and cared for me and showed God's love for me and care for me and explained how Jesus is an expression of that love. And I was drawn to what it is that God, I'm going to say it this way, God at his best represents in terms of the way he's loved the world. And then I like to shorten John 3.16, from God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Only sentence I use the word whosoever in. Okay, and I shorten it this way. God so loved the world that he gave. And you need to remember the world that he's giving himself for. It's the fallen world. It's the messy world. So as, you know, to kind of this, the last little thrust here um, of our journey, as we, as we come out of the pandemic, um, and I, I think it's accelerated what was already happening in culture. I think probably everybody agrees with that in so many ways, right? But yeah. one of those ways, I think, is certainly Christianity being pushed to the margins of our culture. It, whenever it was felt more at the center, now it's being pushed. I, th I think it accelerated exponentially uh, in terms of the ill reputation of Christianity and you know Christianity not being as dominant and respected and all of that. So now Christians get to learn how to American Christians get to learn how to live in the margins, not in the center. So, and that's happened pretty quickly. It feels like, but certainly accelerated over the last years. What, what would you say to Christians in the, what, how does life in the margins work? What, what mistakes do we need to avoid and what do we make sure we need to do in the margins? Well, again, let me characterize what you just described. We've gone in my lifetime, from being the home team to not just being the visiting team, but the visiting team who are the rivals who get booed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's, that's happened in my lifetime. That's the move that's been made. We've been slow to react on how we're on the playing field, or if we've reacted, we've reacted poorly. And so, so the point here is, is that we're back to the future. Look at the early church again. No cultural power, no social power, no political power. But what did they do? They served and they loved. They served the city. You know, it's like the Jeremiah 29 passage. I'm going to send you into exile. You're going to be living with people who are anti-God. Okay. I would not commend Babylon as the exemplary Christian society. All right. So, and God's sending Jews there. And what does he say about how to live there? Serve the city. Do what you can to show the care and the love and the goodness of God. I, I used to say, you know, we used to open up the gospel with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, the old crusade thing. All right. And then the next question is asked, so how does someone know that God loves them? 
Someone knows that God loves them by the way Christians love. And so um, that's not an idea that I'm going to put in your head. That's something I'm going to show. Now, Sermon on the Mount says the same thing. People may see your good works and praise the God of heaven as a result. So, so that's the idea that we're talking about here. So, so it's this lived out faith, both in community, in the Christian communities that function biblically and Christianly, if I can say it that way, and in the individual care that I take for people, particularly for people who say, why do you care about me? I'm not sure I necessarily care about what you believe in. You know, how, how does that work? Yeah. And that breaking of that stereotype creates space for engagement. Love it. Well, I don't want our journey to end. So I'm going to do, I'm going to give one more statement and then we're going to have to just because, you know, you got books to write and people to teach and so on. Um, would you agree that, you know, I've, I've heard it said, I don't know who said it, but that Christianity tends, when you look at church history, Christianity tends to be much more healthy in the margins when it's in the margins of society than when it's at the center of society. Um, react to that a little bit. No, I think that's true. Uh, and there's a part of me that wonders if the reason we're where we are is so we can relearn that lesson. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, because it's uh, the Bible says that we're best when we're weak, not yeah. when we're strong. And uh, and because that weakness pushes us to depend on God and it should push us to respond in a way that's not like the world. The thing that makes a disciple of Jesus different, at least it was supposed to make it different, is we don't work the way the world does. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't work the way the world does. We take up the world's tools and the world's methods. We make ourselves another special interest group. There are lots of special interest groups out there. But yeah. when we live out our faith and we're really authentic about our religious commitment, that's different than the way the world lives. That's when we have a chance to catch people's attention and have them ask what's going on. Well, Daryl, thank you so much uh, for just providing insight into all of this. I think it's such a unique time for the church in the next few years, I think are really critical for the American church. And thanks for, you know, being one of those people who are helping the rest of us think through this, not only on this podcast, but in general, and um, I know you do podcasts of your own um, that you're involved in uh, and with the Center for Christian Leadership and otherwise. And I really, really appreciate your work. So whenever you can look up uh, Daryl Bach, uh, I think it is like 40 books or something, right? Yeah, I, I, I actually don't know the exact number, but it's over 40. Yeah. 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 So thank you for all. The I'm off the streets. And... The crime rates down. <laughs> well, thank you for that, too. Okay, that was a lot. And I could Ooh. see even, yeah, on your face that like you were just having to take it all in because that was a lot to process. Yeah. It was, you know, and in yeah, we've got to do it, you know, so mm -hmm. I, I the stakes are really high for our culture, not just Christianity right. and culture, but just culture in general. When you look at these massive issues in our culture and I think everybody would say, not even just Christian, everybody I think would say, yeah, we, we could do better. And, and so the, the, these issues all are ongoing. They're not just past issues. These are ongoing mm -hmm. issues that we need to have the humility to just ask ourselves, you know, 
um, rather than justifying my perspective or behavior, right. I want to be open to ways I can think differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I would recommend anyone who is um, joining us, listening, watching that, that that calls themselves a Christian or cares what the Bible thinks to just like watch this one again, mm-hmm. you know, and take notes because um, Dr. Bach he rattled off a lot of stuff, you know, and and a lot of that's just kind of off the top of his head. He's just a really smart guy, but very well respected as as you set up, you know, from kind of from from all sides, you know, it's it's kind of a Bible uh, scholar, but. Um, I think I took a lot of notes, you know, and I, I was, it was interesting the number of times he mentioned just our need to listen well in all of those topics um, that we, we, I don't know. I thought, I thought that was really important. Yeah. I feel like that has been the common thread throughout all of these episodes mm-hmm. on lessons from the pandemic. Almost every expert, if not all of the experts right. we talked to said, one of the biggest things that we've got to learn as people yeah. is to listen yeah. to the other side and maybe not be so quick to speak and give our own opinion, our own thoughts. Just listen and ponder why they feel the way they do. And then it's easier to move forward because you're looking at things with a fresh set of eyes instead of rushing in to give your own opinion and, and try and get the last word. So I, I feel like all of these episodes have been incredibly helpful. This was our last one in the series on lessons from the pandemic. So we're so glad that you've joined us. If you haven't seen them all, go back and watch the ones that you've missed because for all sure. of them are so good. So thanks so much for joining us. We would love to have you come back. We'll have another episode soon here on The Good Complex. But until then, get out there and make it good. <laughs>